Salam and hello. Welcome to Uproot. My name is Lily Bakella Piper, and I am so glad that you've tuned in today. Over the next three shows, I am really excited to share with you interviews that I've done with three amazing women. The theme that kind of centers around all of them is this idea of justice, which is really central for me here at Uproot. I cannot wait for you to hear their stories, to learn from what they have done in their professional lives, and I hope also take home some really valuable lessons that you can apply. So today is part one of this three-part series, and I am really excited to share with you my interview with Latanya Mapfret, the incoming president and CEO of the Global Fund for Women. Enjoy. Today, we're going to talk about the life and work of a modern-day feminist. I'm delighted to welcome to the show Latanya Mapfret, who is the incoming president and CEO of the Global Fund for Women and the former executive director of Planned Parenthood Global, the international arm of Planned Parenthood that she led for eight years. During her time there, she was credited with quadrupling the size of their program to become one of the most innovative and sustainable global health organizations in the field. Prior to joining Planned Parenthood, Latanya worked for eight years as a human rights officer for the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, and for 10 years with the United States Agency for International Development. She began her career with the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund in Washington, D.C., and has received many awards and honors, including two esteemed meritorious honor awards from the U.S. government and the highest honor in civil service, the Superior Honor Award from the U.S. State Department. She currently serves on the board of directors at Oxfam America and Change, and in her spare time is an adjunct professor of population and family health at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. If you can believe it, she's also a Woodrow Wilson (laughs) Fellow, author of four UN Human Rights Reports and Manuals, and a member of the prestigious Council on Foreign Relations. Latanya is also a returned Peace Corps volunteer, and during her time in law school, she interned with a legal resources center that wrote the brief to secure Nelson Mandel's release from prison. She holds a BA in government and politics, a master's in public policy, and a Juris Doctorate all from the University of Maryland. So shout out to all you Terps listening. (laughs) So today, as we talk about modern day feminism and human rights and women's rights, I am honored and delighted to welcome my friend, Latanya Mapfret to the show. Latanya, welcome. Thank you, Lily. You're so great. (laughs) Well, in particular, I really have to uh, thank Latanya because I interviewed her two months ago. We had a great time. And then when I went to listen to the audio, it was completely a bust and my voice was missing. And so she's been gracious enough to come back again no and have this conversation. So thank you, Latanya. Yes. <laughs> well, you have an, had an amazing career and have an amazing career. And all of those details that I've just read certainly <laughs> tell us something about you, but mm. not all of you. Mm. So how do you introduce yourself and how do you like to be known? So, so I'm sitting here listening to you, uh, Lily, talk, you know, the bio is always very interesting. Every time you hear it, you're like, yeah. hmm, who is that? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I mean, a couple of things I would say. Um, I, you know, I, I define myself really from the women who raised me. Mm. Um, both my grandmothers have passed now. My, uh, my mother's mother passed in 2008, and then my, my father's mother passed in 2014. Mm. Um, but they really are, for me, the first in and greatest feminist that I've ever met. And although they would never call themselves that, they would never name themselves in that way, um, they really were the strongest women I've ever seen They in every way. I mean, mm-hmm. they knew how to, uh, they were the greatest diplomats. <laughs> they were the greatest, you know, uh, PTA, you know, moms. They were also the greatest fighters and was right there whenever there was a, a you know, a, uh, some kind of civic responsibility that needed to be upheld. They were leading the charge. And so for me, I'd like to define myself by would they feel good about who I am yeah. right now? Oh, so that awesome. really is. And I know that's not something you can put in a bio, but yep. I'm always thinking, well, they would they enjoy sort of yeah. the reading of that bio? And I hope they would. Well, yeah. I have to... I. 
As your friend, I love hearing that bio because it makes me very proud and grateful to know you and appreciate your work. And is, is there a story about either of your grandmothers that kind of stays with you as you're working in these fields of human and women's rights and really navigating complicated situations? Are there lessons or one particular memory that kind of stays with you? So I, I think they were very two two different people in many ways. My mother's mother, my Nana, was always known for hugs. You know, she always felt like there's a hundred ways you can do things. Why mm. choose the hard way? Mm. Um, and I remember when I was in school, I had a bully, which was much more common then, as yes, you know. Yeah. Um, and she bothered me every day. So my grandmother said, um, knowing my brother, who was two years older than me and quite the Casanova in middle school. She said, why don't you introduce her to your brother? And I'm like, why would I do that? I hate her. And so she said, trust me with this. So I told my brother that this bully, this girl said that she liked him. And like magic, after that, she stopped paying attention to me at all and only paid attention yeah. to his little overtures that he yeah. would place on her. And um, and at the end of the day, of course, she didn't bother me anymore. Um, and that was it. It was yeah. resolved. And yeah. so, you know, my grandmother was right. We could have fought. We could have done all kind of things. But this seemed to be the easier approach. And so I always think about that. You yeah. know, are we taking the easy way out or are we just making things harder for ourselves yeah. when we need to resolve a problem? And so I think about her a lot because I do believe a hug is sometimes much better than a fist. Absolutely. So. <laughs> oh, I love that story. I mean, just that's the ultimate level of diplomacy. Right, exactly. <laughs> navigate a, a playground bully. And, exactly. and Lord knows we have plenty of political bullies, so maybe we'll come back to that. Sure. Um, so you started your career in law. That's mm-hmm. what launched you into this work. Yep. Was there anything in particular that inspired you to pursue law as a mm. profession? You know, I knew early and um, same brother, same love of my life, of course. Um, He uh, was he went through the criminal justice system early in Philadelphia, where we grew up. um, And I thought just the process that he saw um, was incredibly unfair. Um, Mm -hmm. I saw the difference even at a very early age. And I guess by the time he had his first arrest, I was probably only around nine or 10. Mm -hmm. And he was young. Um, And I saw that that system was built a lot on patronage. And if you had money, you can get lawyers, you can talk to judges. Um, and you can make things work out at those young ages, whereas if you didn't, things turned yeah. very different, and it began a life of in and out of jail for him. And I think that that was my goal, was to sort of be able to level the playing ground in that system. And so from mm-hmm. an early age, I wanted to be a lawyer so I can help make that a bit more fair for the young black boys who were going through that system. Wow. Mm. That's, um, you know, so many of us feel powerless when we witness mm. acts of injustice, but at mm. such a young age to have such a impression that it stays with you yes. and helps you. Yeah. I mean, law school's not easy. No. Getting all these degrees, what else do you got? You got to... <laughs> Public policy masters and all that, that's not easy. So just to stay the course Mm -hmm. from that young age, it must have been a really powerful impact. When you started your work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, what did you learn there that maybe carried with you as you went on to do quite a broad set of, of work as you went on? But from your time there, were there things that you took forward into mm-hmm. your other positions and other opportunities? I think the Legal Defense Fund, first of all, Elaine Jones, who many people know, I mean, she's still my hero. You know, mm-hmm. she um, just was a badass fighter. And so I think she was probably the first real example in my life. I mean, you have the story, Thurgood Marshall, and you have all the, yeah. the women before us who are really um, just incredible uh, his feminists, I'll call them, you yeah. know, but Elaine Jones was the first person in my presence. I worked for her at the Legal Defense Fund and, um, and I, just an amazing woman. And what she taught me was that there's one thing to be in the court. There's a, another thing to be, you know, in the legislature. So on the Hill, as yeah. we call it. Um, so, you know, one, you fight for justice and, in, 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 you know, uh, in the courts, but the other side was to actually have good laws to start with. Right. And that is where I started getting into the public policy side of the work that I did and, and very much interested in changing laws, um, not just fighting, you know, uh, for, for the laws um, that yeah. we already have to make yeah. them more fair. And um, so for me, um, the, that time with both Elaine and the Legal Defense Fund was a time to learn how to use that. We worked on the Motor Voter Bill, which was a simple ask, which was that when you signed up for your driver's license, you can be registered to vote automatically. As you know, in our country, we still struggle with how yeah. to get people Absolutely. to be able to vote in a fair way. 
Um, but that was the first thing that I ever worked on. And so we worked on it from both sides. We worked on it from the, the legal side. So we challenged it in court, but we also then um, uh, worked with uh, legislatures who actually tabled bills to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and it was probably some states have now done it, but federally it's not. Um, it's not an option. Right. Yeah. And so we are still struggling with the whole concept of allowing people to register to vote as just a regular right in yeah. our in our Absolutely. country. Yeah. Um, mm. When you, you know, just talking about voter registration in our last election and then since then, so 2016 to now, as people are both citizens of the United States, but we've mm. been living abroad, yes. we've been able to witness democracy in many different countries mm. and the processes in many different countries. And it's always striking to me here in Kenya in the, in the last few elections, um, well, we had a very unique election last year, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, but prior to that, people would queue for hours yes. and that right to vote. And I'm Ethiopian, so in Ethiopia, similarly, when we first yes. were able to finally vote, people, hours. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., I think, I hope mm-hmm. that people still value voting and that access um, as they do here in East Africa. But what do you see from where you sit as somebody who's kind of in the inner workings of, of the law? Do you feel like as... Americans, we've lost some of that, I don't know, the sacredness of being able to vote or like you said, because it should be a right, but it's becoming Mm. maybe not always a straightforward process to register that Mm. that's changed how people view it. You know, I'm not sure. And I, I've lived in a lot of countries now. So I agree with you, you know, the, the voting, I mean, I think there's probably, um, you know, as many people in the U.S. who really care strongly about having their vote count. Um, I do think, though, there are a lot of obstacles for us. I mean, even those of us that do absentee voting, I mean, it gets voted last, and that's only if there's a question, right? They only open it at that point, which is good, because if there is a question, you have it. Um, But I do think that we could do a little bit more. We're a little bit more sophisticated. We live in a digital age now um, to remove uh, many of the barriers that we see in the Mm -hmm. United States. Um, I you know, I think about how troubling it is sometimes in many countries to actually just put on an election, to stage it. We don't have that trouble in the U.S., and so I think we need to be much more of an example than we are currently are yeah. um, in the sort of sophistication around how we try to block those votes and, um, you know, the electoral the <laughs> college system, gerrymander, you know. Yeah. So all these sort of sophisticated things, I think, do make people... Um, uh, worried that their yeah. vote is actually counting. And so mm. I think we're moving into an age where you see that more, a little bit more. So people now used to be, if I could just, you know, put my vote in, I would be good. And I think that's what we feel in many yeah. of the countries where we lived around the world. People just want to be able to say that they, they made that vote. Um, and I think in our country, in the U.S., we're getting much more sophisticated. And so people are understanding, did my vote even count? You know, so if Hillary got three million more votes than Trump and he still ended up as president, what does that mean for my choice? And so I think we need to answer that. And I really do think we need to go back to the drawing board and think again about how that representation looks in, yeah. in this country, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something I've learned just in this last election cycle that all across the world, it is should be right. And we have to not just vote once, but we have to vote at every level. We have mm. to follow it up. We have to advocate. Um, I think we take way too much for granted. Um, mm. Mm. Anyways, so I've gone all the way to NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, <laughs> in your work and career. Talk to us about just kind of, you know, you, you, you go to law school, but you don't just go to law school. You have um, an opportunity also to, you, you decide actually to go into the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about what what prompted that decision, your family's reaction to mm-hmm. saying, hey, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to go live outside the U.S. for some time. Walk us through those years of your early work and career. Yeah, I know. I totally caught the bug. I think while I was in law school, um, I came to a program here in Nairobi. So it was in 1992, and okay. it was the first time I was out the country. 1992. I, can you imagine? And the University of Nairobi in the law faculty here, you know, was world-renowned. Yeah. Um, and uh, it worked with the LSE, so the London School of Economics, and with schools in the U.S., law schools in the U.S., to bring students to oh. study public international law. So that was the first time I was outside the country. Um, it was incredibly eye-opening, um, as many experiences are in coming to Africa. I don't think I had a preconceived notion about what it would mean as an African-American coming to um, Africa, but of course, the minute I hit this 
ground, this land. Mm. It was an amazing experience on so many fronts. I learned so much, not just from the program, but just culturally being here and what it meant to be black, you know, and, um, and how that, um, you know, has shifted over the the many centuries that we've been, you know, you know, have crossed the waters, right? So do, do you remember that first day when you got here or maybe oh, that yeah. first experience? What, what, was, what did that yeah. feel like to you? Well, I mean, it was, um, well, exhilarating just coming to Africa. But I think the first thing that I remember really was the street children um, and talking to them and, um, and really seeing from their perspective, I was no different from any other Mazungu, right? I'm just, <laughs> yes. you know, so which was startling in some ways yeah. because my blackness is so much a part of who I am in the United States and a part of my culture and my family, you know, so yeah. um, it was very, um, to be with white people on that trip and, and not be seen as any different than them was really, really mm. startling. Yeah, um, you were just an American probably in there. Right, perhaps, yeah. uh, absolutely yeah, American. Just a foreigner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, you know, talk yeah. funny, um, yeah. has nothing to do with us. Yeah. And so uh, that was, um, I think, interesting. But I was also here during the time of the we're growing Rwandan crisis. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of Rwandan refugees were in the city and I made friends with them and um, came to understand their situation. And so that, that was on my mind most of the time that I was here. Very, very um, uh, troubled by what was happening in Rwanda. Um, And it it wasn't, you know, I know people like to look back and it was like, oh, like it all of a sudden happened. No, it was a growing crisis and people knew it everywhere, what was happening. And and as just a citizen of the world, I think, but probably also as one that relates to Africa, you know, I was startled beyond belief what was happening there and that everyone knew. Um, and that we couldn't prevent what ultimately ended up happening was was part of my first journey to yeah. Africa. So it was a lot of um, interesting things going on in those years. And um, and I was happy to be a part of it and happy to have experienced this. I would never know that I would end up living in 10 African countries in my yeah, lifetime imagine. at that point. Um but I, I really do think back to 1992 a lot in the work that I do all the time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to hear that because I think sometimes we throw away our experiences as mm. like, ah, what was that about? Mm. You know, but just to think about this experience, mm. so that's, uh, you know, we won't age ourselves, but that was almost mm. three decades ago mm. and how much that has stayed with you and yeah. maybe informed consciously and subconsciously things that you're doing today. Absolutely. So after that experience, um, you went at some point to South Africa and spent mm-hmm. some significant time there. Tell yeah. us about that part mm-hmm. of your, your journey. So after um, I did Legal Resources Center, which was probably a year or so after um, I left Kenya and went back to law school, um, I, did, I had a South African a, a professor at law school who was trying to gather up attorneys to go over to uh, South Africa right after they graduated in okay. order to practice there um, and uh, help with the end of apartheid really was what the timing was. Um, And so I had this opportunity to one work in legal clinics. So every morning meeting with a lot of women who are going through, you know, troubling situations. So gender-based violence in their homes, um, you know, economic uh, atrocities, you know, Mm -hmm. their lands being, you know, their homes literally being taken, not just the land. And this is post-apartheid. Well, this is as apartheid was ending. So it was actually before the election. So President um, Mandela had already left left um, Robin Island, but okay. he was, you know, campaigning. Um, so, but we knew, uh, you know, the world knew yeah. apartheid had fallen. And yeah. so those townships um, that, that black people were living in were actually becoming real municipalities. Mm. And so they were becoming cities on their own with functioning politics, you know, and all the other things that come with that. And so I was a part of trying to see that through. And that was part of my job. And so I served in a number of townships in the Cape Town area. And so it was an excellent experience for somebody young, a lawyer like me, you know. Um, And so it was an easy yes to come and do that work. And I did it for a little while. But while I was there, I was also working on a a whipping case. So children were allowed to be whipped in school. and I use I use the term whipping because that's legally what it was called, and okay. that they used a whip, so wow. it was you know. Yeah. Um, and so that was outlawed during the time that I was there, and I was fortunate to work with the lawyers at the Legal Resources Center to have that outlawed um, in the schools. But it also then the the funder was the uh, UNICEF, and UNICEF um, told me about a program called the UNV, uh, the United Nations Volunteer Program, which was administered in the U.S. by Peace Corps. 
So okay. I never thought about Peace Corps, never thought about it as an option, but then saw that Peace Corps had all of these other fantastic programs within it um, that you can participate in. And so I applied and I was able to go and I was actually posted in Lesotho which, as you know, is surrounded by (laughs) South Africa. So my experiences in South Africa came to bear in the work I was doing through Peace Corps with UNICEF um, and that work in Maseru. And so it was just a perfect you know, opportunity. So it almost looked like I knew everybody, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but I it was only imagine. because I came from South Africa right before. Uh, so that was, okay. those years were, and it, Rich. Total total it five, five, years. five years. Yeah. yeah. Total five years. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to treat you just like this legal robot who went mm. and did, 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 because you were a, a young woman. Mm-hmm. You were a black woman from the U.S. coming into these spaces that really profound work was happening and the world was watching as it was mm-hmm. happening. What was it like for you to be there? You know what I mean? Mm, like you mm. were there and there's your legal capacity of what you're able to either do or not do legally to, to affect change and bring justice to communities. Mm. For you as a person, what were some of the things you were experiencing? What were the things mm. that made that time memorable? What was it, some of the things that made that time hard? Yeah. You know, you were far from your family in a day and age where we didn't have WhatsApp right, and all yeah. that to stay super close. So <laughs> Still writing. Yeah, letters. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so tell me what that was like for you as, as the person, Latanya. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes during it, you're just bulldozing through. You're just trying to do a good job and, and you know, and have a good time. You know, And I think <laughs> that was definitely the, what was on my mind. I look back. I mean, I was usually the only woman in a room. Um, I was also a black woman. So for many of my uh, colleagues at the ministries, um, and often it was ministers, sure. um, I think, uh, you know, there was this distaste for young black woman mm-hmm. kind of running things, you yes. know, representing her organization in whatever fashion. Um, so I did have to deal with that a lot more than I would have hoped. And um, I always tell this story about, this was years, some years later, but um, with President Obasanjo. And, um, Please tell this story. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so he... This is years later, you were working in Nigeria at the time. So give us a little USAID. background. I was serving in Nigeria under USAID as the mission director. Um, and there were um, things that were happening in the country. And so the president decided to, I mean, not least of that he was about to go through an election. He had just lost the the third term uh, vote. Um, So he called together all the heads of agencies. And of course, um, USAID was a major player in in Nigeria and the support that it gave to the government. And so we were called in and I went to represent USAID. It just so happened that around the table, and there was maybe 12 of us, um, there were no other women in the room. So it was him, his advisors, I'll call them, some ministers, and then all these 12 other, you know, members of um, agencies and heads of agencies. And, uh, and so, you know, and again, it wasn't at this point, I had gone through this for many years in many different countries. So it didn't seem odd to sit in this room. Uh, But what was different about this experience was that um, the tea was being served. um, And so let's say if it was maybe about 20 of us in the room, uh, it was all set up on a perfect little tray and it was brought into the room by the, you know, the person who brings the tea. The tea person, (laughs) yes. And he came and he dropped it right at me, right beside me. Completely coincidentally, yes. And then left the room. Right. Um, And so, (laughs) you know, and it was just, I couldn't even concentrate because I was like, I, does he expect me to serve the tea? I can only, I, I'm sitting here and my blood pressure is rising. Right. This is not even happening right now. So no, I, can so I couldn't even focus on what the president is saying, yeah. you know, about what's happening in the country because I'm just so floored that he would do this. Yeah. Um, so I, I just sit and I, you know, I do nothing and no one else does anything else. So we just are not having tea. Right. And so the president talks, talks. And then when he finishes, he gets up. And he walks because he's way at the front of the room, right? And so he walks all the way around. He fixes me a cup of tea, puts it with me. He fixes himself a cup of tea and goes back to his desk. And it was just like, I'll forever love this man (laughs) because he knew he was so empathetic to know that that was really a hard situation for me. Um, And so people started getting up and getting their own tea. They're like, oh, the woman's not doing (laughs) it. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> and you know, here we are. It's not that different today. You know, mm. I go to meetings, um, similar, not 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 with presidents, but uh, small but small yeah, meetings. And no. but the same thing happens yeah. where things will sit and food will sit, and and we still default to you know the, our, these 
prehistoric roles for women. Right. How did you navigate that? Did you consider yourself a feminist at that juncture? Was that something, a part of your language when you were, you know, in Cape Town with other women, you know, helping them to access power? Were you doing it from the lens of a feminist, do you think, at that point? I do. And like yeah. I said, I think from the time I was young, I mean, yeah. I grew up in a house, I mean, households, many, my yeah. grandmother had seven, you know, wow. and, and my other grandmother had four, but they were sing, you know, like women who were female headed households. Yeah. And, you know, I only learned later that that was a, like a bad thing. <laughs> that a female actually, headed household was? I knew many people who yeah. had been in the house raising, sure. you know, sure. and mine was like efficient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were all in school. We yes. were all in church, you know, yes. or wherever. Yes. But it was it was a, a good thing, you know. It wasn't seen as like a bad thing that you didn't kind of take mess from men, and and you know, you got your job done, you work, you paid your bills, right. you know, and things like that. So I think I must have grown up a feminist because yeah. I never thought of it as like a bad word or thought of things that were female run or female led as things that were, you know, had a, a bad kind of start, you know, or yeah. were somehow behind. It was like, no. Yeah, you know, you know and I think yeah. um, feminism itself, just the word itself has become mm. so loaded. And yeah. in our previous conversation that we're not getting used, it didn't work out so well. <laughs> we talked a bit about that and it stayed with me afterwards um, because I think I mentioned to you that, for example, my mom's a strong woman and would never call herself a feminist mm. because, you know, she's also an Ethiopian woman and, and there's so much weight mm-hmm. or I think a Western lens added sure. to that term right. when you're here on the That's continent right. mm. that you resist mm. as an African woman and you, and you still want to honor your family units. You still want to honor, right. you know, the men in your life. And so you feel like taking on that term would sure. dishonor them. Right. But so much of what I hear you saying is you know, feminism wasn't something to be or to aspire to. It just is who I was. It's what yeah. I saw every day. And yeah. so it shaped me. And yeah. now the if you want to call it feminism, fine, but maybe it's just <laughs> right. the map fret family right. way, you know, yeah, that this exactly. is how we, this is how we engage with the world. And I think so many of us, if we, if we would reflect, yeah. would say that's, that's true of our histories mm-hmm. and, and our grandmothers and mothers too, Absolutely. you know, that they were feminists before there was feminism in right. a sense, you exactly. know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, your international journey starts, um, and what what continued to keep you abroad? Um, you know, I've read a little bit about your bio in terms of the work, but certainly at any point in time, you could have decided, no, I'm, I'm going to stay domestic in my focus. Mm. What kept your vision and your interest at the global scale? Yeah, I, so after I did... Um Ethiopia after I did um, Oh, you can't just say after I did Ethiopia. I know. You know I'm going to make you go sit in Ethiopia and talk about that for a minute. Ethiopia (laughs) was... What were you doing uh, in Ethiopia? Tell us. I was still with UNICEF. So after I left Southern Africa, I went to um, Ethiopia and I covered Ethiopia and Eritrea as what was called the child protection officer. And it was during the time of the conflict between the two countries. Yes. Um, And and I I just had a baby. So Mm. it was... um, you know, an, an incredible, and, and my um, husband and I were separated, so he was only back and forth. And yeah. so it was just this, um, a lot was going on That's in a lot. my life. Yeah. Um, and I was feeling, um, you know, uh, very in tune to what was happening in Ethiopia. Ethiopia, I mean, well, you know, because you're from there, yeah. it's such an incredible country with an incredible history and very proud people. Um, and it was a struggle what was happening between the two countries for I mean, it was between families, exactly. you know, exactly. families were being Which separated. Yeah, sort of. Absolutely. Um, situations. And so um, I, I learned, I got, you know, when it's during times of conflict in your career, you get so much responsibility. And so I was blessed to have that. And so I was in charge of a big swath of the portfolio there in Ethiopia. And my supervisor, her name was Zodi, um, was actually Ethiopian, which is very rare in the UN system that you get the ability to have like a very senior um, national officer to report to. Um, And I think that meant so much in my career to be able to learn from her. But I think she also then counted on me to do a lot more than others. And um, and to represent the organization in a lot of places that maybe she felt like she was needed in a different way. So I feel like that experience was really the turning point for my career. I think as a professional moving from junior to more More senior. senior, Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting because you're on the front lines of pretty significant shifts and Mm. movements in the continent in Eastern Mm. Southern Africa, you know, the end of apartheid, the conflict with Ethiopian Eritrea that only recently was Mm. kind of finally had a peaceful-ish, um, sure. you know, uh, mm. conclusion just, just last year. Yep. So as you're watching these movements, mm-hmm. you know, in our kind of post-civil rights mm. 
mm-hmm. society in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you're learning about what these countries, how these countries are, uh, you know, addressing these pretty significant movements in there that, yeah, either that you're thinking we should do this in the United States to actualize change or that you're thinking this looks familiar, you know, mm-hmm. what, I guess, I guess I'm thinking of you as a woman who's also American there with the lens. Um, and this must have felt in some ways, I don't know, maybe you saw similarities, maybe you didn't, mm-hmm. but was there a part of that that you could view from an American standpoint? I think now, because I'm definitely older, and so you have the benefit of hindsight, but I am convinced that movement only happens from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And there used to be this feeling like you can do things, I mean, you know, you have different methodologies in the ground up, you can use the legal system, you can use protests, you can, I mean, you know, so there's so many different ways that you can do it. But I've never seen now through any of the experiences I've had, whether it's in the US or anywhere else, that things aren't starting to move or bubble up up from the ground yeah yeah it's yeah. um we are not a very good i would say <laughs> race of people and i mean humans sure to let things kind of trickle down and i know there's been all these experiments and how that happens you know if we can set the agenda then everybody else will um you know buy in mm-hmm. but actually the only thing that i've seen of success is when the people on the ground get tired and stand up and and, yeah. can, and insist that things are going to change and they change it in every fabric of society, which then includes, of course, politics and includes, you know, the economics and, and things yeah. like that. But I am convinced that if you can give people tools, you know, at the grassroots to be able to um, sustain the momentum, the movements, then they will they will have sustainable change yeah. and, and things will be looked at differently. And now we have tools like you know, the internet, you know, so doing advocacy, digital advocacy has like changed things because people can learn about gross things that are happening on the ground very quickly. And so you're getting people engaged earlier, you're getting voices that you maybe didn't have before. But to me, it's just a symbol of what people want. People are like, why are everybody, why is everyone on Facebook and Twitter? It's because they do want the information. They do want to learn. And, and although there's a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of misinformation in that, right? too. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> it is that, that understanding that people are engaged that people do want change and people yeah. want movement um, consistently and sustainably is, yeah. is what I've learned. And that's if you look at all of it, you know, across yeah. the board, I think you see that people do want to be a part of a change that's for the better for, for all of us. You and you, you stayed in all these roles in the continent. You mentioned 10 countries. At some point, we're going to have to list them. <laughs> I won't ask you to rank 1 <laughs> right, through 10, your exactly. favorites. Obviously, Ethiopia is number one. Obviously. But, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> But you're just talking about, you know, this ground up change. You were also in Egypt when I yes. think the beginning, was it the beginnings of the Arab really Spring was. or maybe the, the middle of it? No, it was the beginning. It was the beginning. So I was there for almost four years. And um, so, again, all this, you know, people are like, it just blew up in the Middle East. You're like, well, no, no, it didn't. Yes. There <laughs> it people. was happening yeah. all the way through and everyone knew it. Everyone saw it. Everyone what, what did saw we the not regime. see, though? Like those of us who were not there, who were just watching on the news, what did we not see? You didn't see that people were trying to make change, mm-hmm. that they were being repressed. What did that look like? So it was organizations that were trying to get resources, organizations that were trying to get a, a, a audience mm-hmm. with the power structure mm-hmm. as it mm-hmm. was to try to ask for change. You saw people who were being pushed down, who were being vocal about yeah. the situation as they saw it in their country and in their region. What did that look like for your the people that you encountered day to day? You know, the Egyptians that you worked with or lived mm-hmm. near or, mm-hmm. um, you know, were in your school community because your kids were, you know, there right. in school. What did it, what were the what were the messages you were hearing from them? You know, what did it look like for them to be in the midst of this pretty significant move that would really have a massive effect exactly. globally? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, um, so, so I'll, I'll do two things. I'll do two sides of it, because, you know, the way we live in these bubbles in the, sure. in the countries, as third country, yeah. I don't know what we're called, yeah. you know, nationals. Let's I call guess. us immigrants, because immigrants, technically right. <laughs> we're immigrating into these countries. But anyways, it's yes, a, our it's a different story, true. right? Yeah. And yeah. one that you've covered before. But I think just from the work and the, the really privilege of being able to be near especially human rights organizations on the ground you saw them you know being very strategic you saw them masterminding what their voice could mean Mm -hmm. you saw them trying to reach out to other organizations and sectors you know Mm -hmm. so the health sector the education sector you know so that they can come together and try to demand change and try to see a democratic 
system. Mm. I'll call it democratic system, sure. but to try, try to see another political system that worked better for the people who had very little instead yeah. of a system that only worked well for people who were privileged. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, and there is, and throughout my career and throughout the countries I've been in, that really has been a privilege for me to be able to sit with them, to eat with them, and to be able to hear where their minds are um, and where, they, where they're headed, where yeah. they want to go. Whether it, it's achieved or not, I think the, the important part is that people are trying to push back. People are trying to make things better. And so that you could feel that in yeah. everyday life. You People talked about it all the time um, when there were marginalized groups like the Coptic Christians and things like that. You know, they really... Um, talked about their issues and they wanted to figure out how to make things better. So I, I think if, it was very difficult for USAID to be a part of that movement, though, um, sure. as a, a bilateral program in the country who was very much aligned with the government and, and the support that the government needed. Many attempts, both myself personally, but of our organization, to try to fund, to try to support, you know, these human rights organizations were often thwarted or we weren't given permission to do those kind of things from Washington because of the diplomatic sort of crisis that we would have to (laughs) boil. But you knew it was happening. And so you really wanted to just be as supportive as possible. Um, I think where the challenge in Egypt and probably the Middle East was that you, you couldn't prepare for what happened after the right you know the blow up right right. so it's like you have uh you have people many times even in the states you've seen it you people come to the street they protest they loot they you know set things on fire and then it's like now what are we going to do yeah we're we're watching sudan so carefully just to see what will happen we're inspired by the movement we are grateful Bashir has finally been called to task, but we are, I think, all holding our breath, Breath. too, to Mm. say, please don't let this country... You spiral know, into yeah, spiral into something. And, yeah, but yeah. you know, the reason I ask you, and I, I'm I'm so glad you mentioned the strategic approach people take, because I think on the news, what we see is the street mm-hmm. view. We see yes. the people in the streets. We see the anger. We see the tear gas. Yes. We don't see the meetings in quiet spaces of the head of this organization, yes. a women's organization, trying to talk to a health organization, right. trying to talk to a school about how to strategize. And I right. think as Western eyes towards the rest of the world, we kind of think of it, every movement is happening with sticks and stones. Right. And actually, it's so much of this, like yeah. grandma did, yeah. giving all the different ways you can handle right. a bully, yeah. right? You talk, yeah. you meet, you compel, you persuade, yeah. you talk again. And yeah. I think it's so important for us if we really mm. want to, we should, I think, be humble. I guess for me, I'm just, I should talk for myself, just be more humble in how I think about how movements happen elsewhere in the world. And mm. it's not just what CNN We'll put as a headline nope. because it's not very exciting to show nope. the boardroom meeting. You know, yeah. it's not very exciting to show that the strategic partnerships. You're often the hut meeting, right? Yeah, you know, right. the ladies who are under the tree trying to figure out, you know, how we're going to manage what yeah. has to be done. Exactly. And everyone knows. And, you know, the longer I'm in Africa, especially, it's like people know when thing, when movements are, are about, about to, to pop yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's very clear in their daily life and the, the bubbles that are coming, you know, um, people are trying to plan for, are yeah. trying to say, how do we make it? How do we make it more impactful? How do we ensure the outcomes that we want? I don't think people are just sitting around waiting for it to no, all pop off. No, I think absolutely. People are very much absolutely, engaged. absolutely. Mm-hmm. You um, are quoted um, recently as saying something I, I found really interesting. You said that you believe in shifting power to the south, mm-hmm. and that change is a responsibility of many players. Um, you know, we're touching on kind of that many players part right now, but but why this idea of shifting power to the South? Why is that important? Yeah, and, and you know, and I think if I can look back to threads of my career. And what do you mean by South, maybe, sure. too? It might be helpful um, for our listeners to understand what you mean. I think in the threads of my career, coming from the UN over to a bilateral program with USAID um, and now into Planned Parenthood where, you know, an NGO, an international mm-hmm. NGO, um, and coming into the Global Fund for Women, I can see that much of what we thought of as international development was pretty much like bringing capacity to what we'll call the South. Okay. So from the North. And when we say the North, we usually mean the United States and Europe, right? Okay. Um, and then we bring to the South some of these sort of uh, growing technologies, you know, things that will make life better. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, as time has gone on, what we've seen is that 
one, we don't always have the best, you know, idea of what, Imagine. right. We don't have all the capacity <laughs> one, but two, sometimes things are leapfrogging in the developing world or in the South that we get after they do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, there's so much happening that is no longer from one direction to the other. There's all these things that are coming, you know, around in a circle. And so it could be created in the South and then get to the North and Absolutely. maybe scaled up there or vice versa, you Absolutely. know, but either Either way, it's not the same game that we used to think of it as. And so often in many of the programs where I had, if I had to bring someone to Egypt, I wouldn't look to the U.S. I would look to Morocco or to, you know, so many different places in the North Africa and Middle East region to come in and provide that support. The last place I'd probably look is more or less, you know, in Europe or, or the U.S. just because of our histories, Absolutely. which are grossly sort of conflictual, Absolutely. you know, yeah. so it, it's just so much easier. Even, you know, when I think about West Africa and all the work I did in West Africa, again, the last place I would bring is somebody from France, right? Yeah, it would right. always be someone from, you know, yeah. that region. So from Senegal or Gambia, or yeah. and even if they live someplace else, like if they lived sure. in the West, but it would really be this game of sort of trying to figure out how to best get that capacity from a neighboring um, region or country. And so I think that's what I mean. And and when I'm talking really about bringing power back to the South, I am thinking about women's groups and I am thinking about, you know, the small sort of um, uh, NGO that lives in a country who is actually breaking ground on so many different issues that need to be done. Like they know what schools need to go up, what areas don't have schools, where the girls aren't going to school. Um, and not like the Department of Defense, you know, so it's like when, so when I think about, you know, like where does the power and the knowledge lie? And that's where the resources need to go. That's what I'm saying when I say it needs to go back to the Um, and I'm going to ask you a hard question Mm -hmm. because I think you, um, I'm sure, you know, as the CEO of the Global Fund for Women will have opportunity to bring power to places Mm -hmm. How do you bring power to that small NGO who is, you know, my daughter is involved in an NGO that's trying to bring sanitary pads to girls who don't have access and bring some justice to menstrual justice, health mm-hmm. justice, you know, to, to young women. How does a big organization like mm-hmm. the Global Fund for Women or any of your peer organizations actually do that? Because mm-hmm. from where I sit as somebody who's consulted in um, development for so many years, it's a great idea, but then the actualization of it is bureaucratic mm. and cumbersome and yeah. doesn't always happen. So mm. how can that happen? So I will say, and I will speak um, now mostly about the Global Fund for Women, uh, I think there was a time when basically you offer resources, unrestricted operating resources to build an organization mm-hmm. around a champion. So a woman who's doing all this incredible stuff in her community. Um, so now build an organization around that. And that's how you get many of these grassroots organizations. And they can access 10, 15, 25,000 US yeah. dollars and, and build that thing. Mm-hmm. And you trust them. You know, you're not like, oh, you got to, you got to this, 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 you got to deliver X, Y, Z. You yeah. trust that they know what they're doing because they've been doing it for years and they've been bringing people along and really saving lives in many cases as they did that. Um, and so you said, well, let's build an organization around you so you can scale, so you can do more, you can go further, you can go faster. Yeah. Um, and so that was the model. I think also for the Global Fund for Women, to its credit, it said, well, we can't sit here in San Francisco and do that, right? We, right. we need people who can see it from where they sit. And so they built regional funds. So the Women's Development Fund for Africa was built. It sits in Ghana. And so that's a regional fund. And it does exactly the same thing that the, the Global Fund did. And then they said we still need to be closer to the ground. And so they start building national funds. So there's a Congolese fund, there's a Kenya fund, and who also do the very thing because they can see what's happening. And so they don't, women's groups or women don't have to find you. Oh, don't have to find you. They have to, um, you know, they basically, we can find you. We already know what you're doing. Mm. We already know what you're trying to get done. And so we can listen to what you need. And then we can provide that from a national level, from a regional level, and from a global level. I will say, though, that there is, as I'm coming into this position, I think there's still some need for capacity that can come from the um, 
the scale of organizations that are there together. And so if we have organizations across the world that need the same thing, and I'm thinking, you know, very like sort of practical things, like they need to be able to have a database of all their members. Sure. You know, it's not necessary that they buy every single one of the 5,000, you know, organizations buy a database solution. We could help produce that solution and then give it to them. Yeah. You know, so yeah. spend the money necessary to build that thing that is going to be useful for them in their countries and then just give it to all of them. So as a part of the resource, as a part of the grant that they have working with the global fund. So kind of again leapfrogging some of those like phase phases you have to go to when you're building an organization yeah. and say, okay, well we'll we'll give you those things that you need so that you can keep growing and keep focused on the program and the mission. But I'll say one other thing that I think can be useful in giving power back to the South is um, networking. And so you talked about your daughter and menstrual um, pads and Mm -hmm. giving them to the schools. There are a lot of organizations that are doing that around the country and countries, you know, Mm -hmm. and so the ability to bring them together to talk about how they can work better together, how they can work smarter, how they can sort of amass the resources they have to be able to make a difference, even in advocacy, right? I mean, should sure. should there be 20 organizations doing this? Right. Or should the government kind of figure it out and you yeah, know, absolutely. make it a part of what absolutely. they do absolutely. in education? Yeah. And yeah. so how do you have that voice? How do you build that voice by coming together yeah. and networking and, and championing an issue? Yeah, you know, development is a is a like any other or any field and sector. It's complicated. There's mm. so many moving parts. I think I'm always struck by, yeah, you mentioned like not necessarily going to the West to bring people in. I'm always struck by when I go to any number of countries. Nepal. I was in Tonga once. The people they're bringing are from the West. You know, mm. I don't think yet people have really embraced fully this idea. The Latanya idea. Yeah, the Latanya <laughs> idea. Yet. Because I, yeah. and I'm always asking, uh, yeah, my husband who sim- similarly hires people, sure. I'm like, y'all need to stop bringing people from Washington, D.C. to do these things because the cultural disconnect is there. And then, and then when you talk about things like, you know, what, what you'd like to do with the Global Fund for Women in terms of empowering people on the ground to do it, mm. um, the investment is very different. Um, yes. You know, when it's, when it's, I feel differently. It looks different. Yeah, it looks yeah. different. Mm. You know, when you know a community, when you understand them a bit, you're, I think, more inclined. It's not to say that we can't, you know, bridge um, cultural differences, but I just think there's a lot of power we haven't tapped yet. Sure. Uh, and the resources in the continent to do that. And um, I'm looking forward to to what you'll do at the Global Fund for Women because I look at an organization like that and I think, you know, this idea of that uh, women's rights are human rights and I've seen a lot of that theme coming up um, in response to the recent legislation in the U.S. around mm-hmm. abortion that mm-hmm. we have made this too much a women's issue. This mm-hmm. is a human issue and mm-hmm. women are human beings. And right. so legislating what they do with their body now becomes a human right and not just mm-hmm. a women's right. What do you think about that? Do we lose anything by making women's rights simply human rights? Is it better to disaggregate the two and keep them as, you know, two function? you know what I mean? Two objectives, mm-hmm. two priorities to achieve. Mm-hmm. What do you think? So I, I don't think that you need to separate it. I think human rights are human rights. I mean, yeah. of course, women are different, but so are children, right? So, you know, you're going to have uh, categories of humans that require special protections under the law, but that doesn't mean that the human rights, the principles of the human rights aren't the same across the board. And so I don't feel like, it, I think if we start off with trying to notice those differences, you know, then you, you're going to mm. have a problem. And I think that's where we are in the U.S. And I think, um, so if you if you accept that there are human rights, which I thought we had done in the U.S., then you probably wouldn't have gotten here. Yeah. Um, you probably wouldn't have this, you know, etched off this piece of it out into what is really a political um, now discussion. In many countries around the world, women's groups and, and even, I would say, women leaders um, really do try to keep this conversation around abortion and termination of pregnancy in in the medical space and in the personal family space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, quite frankly, and for years, I mean, abortion is not new, you right. know, and it's it's always strikes me in the U.S. the way people talk about it. Um, it has been happening since the beginning of time, since yeah. since humans women have decided um, when they could or when they absolutely could not carry a child to term. And I think so those decisions we've been making for ourselves, with our families, with our husbands and others, you know, trying to make those decisions forever. 
taking that out into a political frame, I think has been a very, very difficult What do you mean experience. by taking that out into a political frame? Which is what we've done in yeah. the U.S. It's taking it out of the medical and personal frame and putting and, it and into a legislative a, kind of right. political yes, conversation. To, right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So we we're we're we've now made it so toxic to talk about what has been something we've been doing for so long. Um, and what's of course heartbreaking is that the only women who really will suffer from this is women without resources to be able yeah. to make those choices. So you've basically taken away from them another aspect of their own autonomy by yeah. doing this. Because women who have means and I have seen this across the world, Absolutely. not just in the US will be able to find someone to help them and those when they have to make those challenging decisions um, and whether that's in the next state the next country they they will do it yeah um, the the trouble really is that for women who don't have those means and women especially who are caught up in the cycles of poverty um, will suffer the most from so these decisions th- that brings up a question I want to ask you about does Phil, you grew up in Philadelphia? Yes. You know, mm-hmm. does does feminism look different to you in Philadelphia maybe than it did in Addis Ababa or in Lesotho or in other places that you've lived across the world? Mm-hmm. Does feminism look different to you in those places? That's it. That's probably the hardest question, but I don't think so. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. And again, we can go back to what we call it. Sure. Because I actually think probably women in Philadelphia were more, especially in my neighborhoods, were more like the women in Ethiopia. So they wouldn't call it that. Um, But whether they felt like women were equal, whether they were willing to work to ensure that women had autonomy over their their space, their choices, their children, um, their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I I don't think it looks different. I think um, we can call it out as different if we want. We can, you know, I've even been told myself that I'm not really a feminist, um, Mm. because I, I feel like it's just as important to be, um, to include men and boys in this fight. I don't think women should have to fight for equality on their own. Absolutely. Well, and too recently, just going back to the menstrual health, I think we're, the research is showing us that unless men and boys get involved in the Mm. conversation of menstrual health, women and girls will continue to suffer because what actual will bring justice is normalizing this Mm. Basic bodily function that yeah. women have and neutralizing it. Absolutely. And if it's only neutral for women and the men are still <laughs> freaking out every time a woman right. needs to go, you know, get a tampon or whatever, then you haven't achieved justice. And no. so, we, how can we yeah. exclude yeah. half of the population yeah. when these conversations Absolutely. come up? Absolutely. It's yeah. not just our job. Yeah. Yeah. We did a, a website in Nigeria um, some years ago at Planned Parenthood, uh, and it was sexual education in general. Mm-hmm. So, you know, about your body and everything. Yeah. The most um, asked about question from the boys on this site was about. Menstruation. menstruation. Wow. They wow. didn't know what a period was. Yeah, yeah. And they know the word. They know it means you probably can't have sex, you know, at that time, but sure. absolutely could not understand and even did not understand what it meant for. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I hear lots of questions from young girls, even about mm. their own sure. anatomy. So I can imagine how boys would be confused about, yes. about that. Mm. Um, so let's, let's talk about young people. We're both mothers. We both mm-hmm. have daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, you must have hope, I guess, hope for what she won't have to fight maybe, or what battles she won't have to fight in her generation that you've had to fight in yours. You know, what are some of those hopes and dreams mm. that you maybe have for her future? I do. I, you know, I hope she never has to sit in a room, um, and be the only woman at the table making mm-hmm. decisions. Um, about women that look like her. Yeah. So yeah. I, I absolutely hope that we're there and that she will experience that. Um, what's good is that her expectation, I'm sure like your daughters, is that they would never be in right. that kind of right. room. That, that sounds foreign to them. Right. That yeah. sounds absolutely ridiculous yeah. that yeah. you'd be at a table of <laughs> yes. white men making decisions, yeah. particularly about black women right. and girls. Right. Um, so I do, I do hope we've at least gotten that far. Mm. I also would like for her to not have to think so much about her gender and her race mm. and her work and her yeah. decisions about where she wants to, to be, her decisions about who she wants to marry, decisions about, um, you know, uh, how many children she wants to have, if she has children at all. I hope that she doesn't ever have to worry about that. I am moving back to the U.S. And so I, you know, and she's now, you know, going through adolescence and, 
you know, I am worried that those kind of things, I mean, I see her, you know, shocked at things that are happening in Alabama and Georgia and just um, questioning why, why is that even an issue for people? Um, And so I like that she has that inquisitive sort of nature that she finds it odd or foreign. And I hope she keeps that. And I hope girls everywhere um, are no longer feeling like they have the glass ceiling that we know still exists, but hopefully they can't see it anymore. Yeah, because yeah. if you don't see it, then you'll bust right yeah, through exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> you'll have passed and be like, oh, right. is that what that was? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope. Yeah. So what does the CEO for the Global Fund of Women, what are, what's the advice that you are giving your daughter and your son? Mm-hmm. I, I'm just that story of your grandmother and the mm-hmm. bullies has stayed with me. And so what's the kind of advice? I want to pick your brain. I feel like if I can take your advice, these are my kids, I will have done the networking oh, and the capacity building that you were talking about earlier. Mm. So what's the kind of advice that are you giving them as your, your son is in university now mm. and, and closer to launching mm. off into adulthood, your daughter is approaching high school. So what's the kind of stories or advice you're giving them? Right now, I'm just so focused on helping them see the need to listen to a lot of different voices. Mm. Um, so we have, you talked about misinformation on the internet. I mean, anything you talk about, they want to Google, you yes, know, right. so they, they want to, if Google didn't, yeah, you know, have yeah. it, it's not important. But really, trying to um, create relationships where they can listen to many different people about a subject because Mm -hmm. um, I think that is where we're getting into trouble is that we're creating these silos as communities whether that's around gender whether that's around race and we can hear each other's point of view but we can't hear the other side of the table and understand really what they're dealing with and what they're looking at and I you know I feel like from when you think about fundamentalism and 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 especially around gender roles and, and leadership of women, um, I think a lot of it is that we're just not listening to each other anymore. We create the silos, we live in the silos, and we function from the silos. And I really want my kids to be those type of people. I mean, they speak different languages, so they can go across where they've lived in different countries. My hope is that you use that to listen to help find solutions for the world that you live in. Okay, now, Latanya, that is Mm -hmm. very rich Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. complex and layered. (laughs) When they're about to go out on a Friday night or your son mm-hmm. is in university, you know, breaks come. What is the like, don't do this, baby. Make sure you X, Y, Z. What are those advice things? That's my husband's job. That- I'm sorry. <laughs> I love it. I'm much more than yeah. who's there. And yeah. What are yeah. they doing? What are you there? wearing? What are I? <laughs> I love it. Well, that's I love that because you, you, it is. It's the whole family. It's everyone's responsibility right. to bring up these babies. So I love that. What, what do they think of your work? Do they ever give you advice about when you get to that boardroom? You make sure they whatever. Do they give you advice on some of these? big meetings you're in and the, and the big tables you sit around? You know, I used to, um, so my son, um, it go, he actually does go a lot. And, and when I go back to the U.S. and usually go to donor meetings or events or receptions, mm-hmm. he'll actually meet me there. Oh, that's great. Um, so it gives him an opportunity to talk with a lot of people. Yeah. And so he's, um, you know, he's excited by who he sees around the tables and who cares about these issues. He just, now he sees all these Silicon Valley types who have made like all this money who selling their give it apps away or whatever, stuff, yeah. right? Who yeah. now want Want to be a part of yeah. something that means something is yeah. meaningful meaningful to them and I appreciate that uh, the the I guess the thing that now um, I think they think about the work um, is that I'm moving from Planned Parenthood which was a fight you know eight years of constant sort of battling you mm-hmm. know um, to ensure that our issues uh, don't get segregated to the the you know the floor of the hill you know yes. as an issue that's theirs and put it back into the issue you know that belongs to the woman yes, <laughs> you know so yes. um, and so they've seen that that kind of constant tension and so they actually seem quite um, relieved to go to the global fund where it's much a much broader and much open playing field yeah. one you can move across sectors but two I mean you know human rights for women while it has its opponents it's still not seen as as a, a, a fight. Sure. You know? you, sure. When you come into the room, you're not seen as the person who's going to yeah. offer up, you know, something that will cause controversy. Yeah. Right? This is acceptable now to talk about women, to talk about women's rights and leaderships and yeah. empowering women is not seen as a, a, a difficult topic. Yeah. So I yeah. actually am, am surprised at how they see that difference that they're seeing. They're so like, oh, well, you don't have to do this anymore. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they're happy yeah. to yeah. see me. And maybe what they yeah. see too is you being able to employ your other 
gifts and talents to not just fight fires, but right. to create change, which is yeah. why I'm sure you started your work in the first place. Yeah, nobody <laughs> exactly. goes to into you know this kind of human rights work for mm-hmm. for the money or for whatever no, you're going because you want to make a difference. So yeah, that's I, I find that very heartwarming that your family sees that yeah. as yeah. valuable too. Yeah. So how have you managed to create this international global? Scale. I mean, Latanya. Honestly, I, 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 it can't be said enough how much um, I admire you, and I'm not the only one. And we, so many folks in our kind of social circles just kind of like in awe of what you've done and what you do. And you know, but how have you then also managed to be a present partner to your husband, to be a present mother, and the balance that we kind of all are seeking as we do pursue our passions? You know, how have you, how have you, you and Angel found a balance over these years? It's been it's been twenty years, so oh, it's been a little bit challenging, and we probably will live apart now yeah. for a little bit so that he can focus on his career. Yeah, um, uh, he'll stay for a little while in Kenya while we go off to San Francisco, Sahara, and I. So that is, I think, um, just part of the ride is that you have to be flexible, mm-hmm. um, and and it's not easy. You know, no, it is not. every single decision requires much more, um, you know, conversation yeah. and and planning. Yeah. So I, you know, and and I think we all like kind of fit into our roles. You know, he's the one who kind of figures out the move. I make the decision that we're going to okay. do it, and then he figures out how we're going to to get from yeah. A to B. Yeah. Um, and he's been like incredible. We've lived in so many countries over tw- the. 20 years he's gotten really good at that so I I lean on him for that um but but I do think with the kids it has always been a priority live near the school and the job yeah (laughs) so you can do both because there is no choice you have to be present um and of course as they get older it gets less onerous but especially at the younger ages you don't ever want you know them to feel like that this is something they do on their own yeah well and you have and you know I met your mom a few months ago she was visiting and so you're blessed with also this kind of extended family unit to be there to support you and which is awesome I think some of us kind of like no I got it. I got it. You know, and we don't always welcome help. But uh, you seem to do that well yeah. to welcome no, I'm it and totally good with yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> Family and friends. You yeah. know, my mom just retired, so she'll be there for us a lot more than maybe yeah. um, she could have been. But every country we've lived in, she's come to visit. And, That's awesome. Yeah, That's yeah. awesome. But, well, what also, I'm sure, you know, maybe your grandmothers have not, you know, lived to see the fullness of it, but she must feel incredibly proud of the work that you're doing. What does she say to you sometimes? You know, it's funny. I was just, my husband and I were talking last night. So she's, um, she takes a lot of pictures of me or if she finds a picture of me online, she shares it on Facebook. It's kind of embarrassing to be at this age. (laughs) And I thought about it. I was like, I'm sure I'm going to be doing that with my kids too. You'll do that. You were still her baby. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I love that. So she seems still super proud. She finds any kind of quote from me anywhere. She's like sending it to everybody. That's great. Has she ever been like, why'd you say that? (laughs) <laughs> never, never, never. That's good never. advice for us as mothers, yeah. I think, too, just to let yeah. our kids be. Always, yeah, yeah. 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 That's awesome. Even when I decided to move on from this current position, and it only, I had only been here two years. Yeah, you know, I think the most she said was that we're going to work together to mm. make sure Sahara is okay. Oh, yeah, because I know she knew that yeah. that was like the hardest part of the decision is what happens. Yeah, you know, with my daughter who's yeah. still in school. Yeah, well, as yeah. you know, it, yes, it, it's yes. difficult right. to move them around. It is. Yeah. It is, yeah. Oh, you're blessed. You're blessed with a wonderful mom. Um, we have talked for an hour already, oh and I just feel like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I was taking up so much of your time. But there, there's so many questions I did not get to to ask you. But uh, I guess as we we are closing up here, and, and you're going into this new role, what do you feel like will be your first priority when you reach the Global Fund for Women, actually on the ground mm-hmm. uh, in San Francisco, and you have offices also in London, is that your other mm-hmm. big office? Global Fund for Women UK, yeah. UK. So we have there. In New York. In New York, okay. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these regional kind of devolved yes. spaces that you mentioned earlier yes. as well. What to you rises to the front of mm-hmm. what needs to be a priority um, as you begin this new, yeah. this new journey? So thank you for asking. And I, I've been answering it a lot lately. And I've been trying to sort of um, use this phrase, the year of reflection. I do want this organization is 32 years old. It has, you know, if you 
if you could check a box, you could say it has done an sure. excellent job. And there's nothing like moving into a situation where things are good. Yeah, <laughs> you right. know, things yes. are already good. Yes. And so for me, it means you have to really sort of step back and look at it mm-hmm. and to be able to say what is needed from the women on the ground to keep moving them further mm-hmm. and faster. Yeah. And what does that look like from the Global Fund for Women? Because we want to be able to provide that. And you can't do that just jumping in and doing any and everything. You have to be very, very um, strategic. You have to use the resources and the skill sets that you have w- you know, within your hand yeah. to be able to utilize that in, um, in the best way possible. And so what I want to do is I want to listen, I want to learn, and then I want to you know, develop a strategy that sort of fills the gaps that we're yeah. finding out there. Okay. Yeah. So if I flip that question a little bit, um, as we close also again, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, what advice would you give to maybe the young woman who's just starting out her career mm-hmm. and young man, uh, maybe in the similar field, whether it's mm-hmm. law or human rights or in the development space, mm-hmm. as you look back and reflect on a yes. good career that's still yes. growing, what's advice that you might give to somebody who's just starting out? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would say follow your heart. Um, because I, you know, I think, you know, everyone wants to create this script, you know, I'm going to do this first, I'm going to go to graduate school and get that thing and then go get my this or that, and then do a job at this. I think those that's not the way opportunities usually present themselves. I think opportunities present themselves because you're um, you're leaning in and mm-hmm. I, you know, that, I know that word is loaded sometimes no, but, from Sheryl Sammer, but yeah. it's because you're, you're volunteering, doing the things that you love and then the jobs find you, the opportunities find you. And I, I think if you stay on that path of the things that really make you feel good, yeah. the rest will fall into place. And I, I, I used to think it was just me. I was kind of lucky, you know, and yeah. I, but I don't think that anymore. I think it is that you really, if you start leaning into the stuff that you love to do, and that you're good at doing, the rest will just kind of start. It's like reading my bio. I'm like, I forgot I did that. And I forgot, I, you know, it's yeah. just like you just do you it just because doing you love it. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Latanya, um, I, I, I'm feeling even emotional just to say it. But honestly, mm. thank you. You know, oh, I really. think one of the big mm. perks of my little work that I do is getting to say thank you to people who have a lot of battle scars yeah. for the work that they've done to ensure rights for people like me. Yeah. So I don't take lightly mm. that... The fights that you've been in have been to benefit thousands and thousands so. of women yeah. who, yeah, will never get to say yeah. thank you. So on behalf of all of them, thank you. Thank you for coming again to the show and talking to me. <laughs> thank you for telling my story. Oh, what a joy. It. And yeah. I hope I can talk to you again. And in maybe mm. a year's time, we'll do a Skype call yeah. from San Francisco and just see how what's going on and what yeah, the latest Yeah, maybe we can bring and, women from Kenya who oh, hopefully be awesome? have benefited from whatever changes we're Let's able do to it. bring them. Let's do yeah. it. Yeah. Let's do it. So. I love it. As my hero Wangari Mathai says, you have to keep at it until it becomes rooted. And Latanya, thank you for keeping at this important work all these very many years. And we wish you all the best. Thank you, Lily. I'm really grateful for the Aga Khan University Graduate School of Media and Communication, who hosted me today for this wonderful recording. Design Thinking for Business is an executive education workshop at the Aga Khan University Graduate School of Media and Communication. This workshop will teach you the skills to approach problem solving in a more creative way and can be used towards an executive certificate in innovation. Sign up now at www.akumedia.aku.edu. So listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and I hope you'll engage with us. You can find me at lilybekellapiper.com or uprootthepodcast.com. Um, and at Twitter, you can find me at Uproot and Lil. That's L-I-L-L. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you soon.